And I saw organizations investing a lot on the platform and the technology aspects of it, not necessarily understanding what they were trying to do with it. From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pool of thoughts, ideas, and advice from IT experts, innovators, and thought leaders, exploring the world of digital transformation, APIs, microservices, cloud adoption, and more. Welcome to episode 64 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalbo, and joining us from Sydney, Australia, is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Good day, David. Hi there, Kevin. All right. Our guest for today is a senior director of product management at Oracle Hospitality, responsible for integration and API strategies for all hospitality products, including the number one PMS worldwide, Opera, which is used by more than 40,000 hotels across the world. Prior to that, he was with Capgemini UK, serving as the CTO for the Oracle practice and also as a global API champion. During this time, he helped many flagship customers define and execute their global API strategies, as well as implement multiple technologies to address a variety of integration and cloud-native needs. He is the author of many articles and white papers and has authored four books on the topic, including the popular title, Enterprise API Management. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us for a round of cocktails is Luis Beer. Hi, Luis. Glad to have you on the show. Hi, Luis. Hello. Four books. That's quite a lot. I know. We often get the comment that how challenging one book is, but four books, you're a, a, a prolific writer. Yeah, I have to say I lost my hair, so, you know, it, it wasn't easy. But <laughs> but if, if you pick a topic that you really enjoy, that's the entry criteria, you know, that's how you start. And, and then, you know, you go from there and then you keep going and going and going and then you realize, wow, <laughs> four, yes. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about your book, Enterprise API Management. You dedicated an entire chapter of it to the business-led API strategy where you said that API programs should focus on our business outcomes. How important is it for companies to realize the business value of APIs? Well, it's a, in my opinion, it's the number, number one factor. And let me just take a step back and give you a little bit of background on, on, on why I gave so much emphasis on business uh, on my book. As, as you said, you know, pretty well, I was helping many organizations worldwide realize their APS strategies. So some organizations were more clear and uh, uh, bold as to what they were trying to achieve. Like, for example, they're undergoing a digital transformation and they wanted to digitalize and create an omnichannel strategy where the experience from a user perspective was consistent across multiple channels, right? Like for example, if I start an order online uh, through the web browser, I could then open my app and see the same order at some stage and then continue from there. So so in those organizations, the outcome that they were expecting is I want to digitalize my organization, meaning that I need to, you know, expose my information assets and my functionality such as any channel application can get access to the same information uh, at any point in time. Other organizations, however, just follow the boss. Like APIs is a thing and we need to do it. And I saw organizations investing a lot on the platform and the technology aspects of it, not necessarily understanding what they were trying to do with it. Uh, basically, an IT-driven project. And, and I saw a lot of investment going into this project without really realizing any business benefit. And then what happens is that these projects tend to die, right? Because, you know, what, do, what would you keep paying for IT infrastructure that no one is using, right? At the end of the day, IT technology is there to help the business, right? And APIs are just a component of the overall technology landscape that organizations are making use of in order to be a better business, right? And I would say that APIs, you know, uh, realized what I come from the SOA background, service-oriented architectures background, and, and APIs really, you know, 
realize the basic benefits that we wanted to achieve with the or traditional, you know, as I call it in the book, SOA, a service-oriented architecture, but couldn't because we focus too much on technology and heavy governance as opposed to what is it that this thing is trying to do so the business actually benefits from it. So business-led API strategy is really just that. It's being able to understand what is the business problem we're trying to solve. What is the business outcome the business needs in order to succeed? And how are we going to measure that success? For example, it could be that a business uh, starts actually, uh, and I was chatting, uh, not, not at the event, but uh, there was uh, like an interesting discussion on, on Twitter uh, the other day, precisely about this point. Not all organizations, not all APIs in our organization start with an internal API, for example, to expose data or whatever. Some businesses start from the API itself, like Twitter. Right. So if the business is to is to make some information or functionality available and then charge for that use, then it's not what business outcome you're trying to to achieve. The API is your business and everything is around it. Right. So it's super important, as I said. And, and, and what I felt when I wrote the book is that there was not enough emphasis on that. A lot of talk was about the API as the goal. And API is not the it's not the goal. API is the means to a goal. And that's why I get so much emphasis on that and why I explain a lot like different ways to understand uh, what potential problems the API is solving and how to measure that success to make sure that you are really achieving that goal. Hope that answers your question. I, I, I'm interested you talk a lot about your experience with uh, your clients when you're consulting and deploying API strategies for them. And you said some of them wanted to take a technology-led approach as opposed to uh, identifying the business value. Yeah. Uh, can you t- share with us some of the stories, some of the success stories, some of the failures? You don't necessarily need to mention names, company names, but yeah, where do companies go wrong? Where do they go right? Uh, are there any particular uh, use cases which st- stood out to you that you could share with us? Yeah, they're, they're, they're plentiful. Like, for example, I just mentioned one that they focus a lot in platform, like let's implement a platform, right? And without actually understanding how to enable then users of the platform to deliver value right from it and therefore it just ended up being a very big expensive IT project so that didn't succeed other organizations for example like like are more targeted as to what is it that they're trying to do i can talk about one uh, very big big supply chain organization like like they understood the value of their information and they understood that their information were locked in multiple legacy systems right so for them being able to offer access to those backend systems and information within which was their main asset was the number one priority. And then they wanted to build from that. So that's a typical, you know, internal uh, API use case where, you know, you have all this information, you're being, you know, uh, challenged by competition that are being born digital, born on the cloud, and therefore API uh, becomes, you know, actually part of your architecture from day one, right? So what do they do, right? So uh, I help this organization. uh, It's actually a a, more than a $100 billion organization, you know, the largest supply chain organization. So you can probably deduce uh, which one I'm talking about, right? Uh, Externalize this information asset so it could be reached in a consistent way across any channel, right? Well, of course, the the problem they had is that it wasn't one legacy. It's multiple legacies. How? what do you do, right? That's where architectures like CQRS, for example, command query, uh, uh, responsibility segregation, and even big data, right, comes into play where you're able to use technologies like, for example, streaming uh, uh, in order to extract data and put it into some sort of a, a, a data mesh, right? Well, data mesh is now the new thing, right? But, in, you know, when I wrote the book, it was more like data lake, right, uh, or big data, right? Uh, so, so, Chaz, you could access that information consistently 
write for reads, and then for writes, it was a little bit more complicated, but then you could still build APIs with a robust integration layer that could then, you know, do the writes and updates against the system of record for that particular record. So uh, that project was actually quite quite successful. And and before I, you know, I, I then moved on from consulting into product management. But before I, I left, right, the last workshop I had with the customer was around how to monetize on the data. And if you see my chapter one in the book, I talk about the API value chain. And the reason I'm talking about this customer in particular is because they really did follow it. Like they understood that, okay, information is my asset and I need to make this asset available. Where do I start? Okay, let's start by having a robust API layer that can be consumed, right? By multiple channels, by multiple applications, either uh, internal and maybe in the future external, and then build from that, right? So they started enabling a mobility application. They started enabling uh, 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 B2B portals. And then they said, well, hold on one second, but I have these assets. That, and I think some of these assets might be valuable for other organizations to transact, and maybe I'm able to monetize on that. So let's explore this a little bit more. Let's explore how a potential API monetization strategy would work alike, and, uh, and uh, how do I actually do it? What components of the architecture do I need in order to do that? And then we started talking, about, for example, about, you know, it's not just the API platform you're talking about. You need to understand what is your API monetization model. Are you going to charge for a call? Are you going to charge uh, uh, on a tier basis? Are you going to charge... Uh, 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 based on share revenue, for example, are you going to charge on transaction fee? Uh, is it going to be a premium? And, and so on and so forth, right? And, and then you realize that, okay, it's not as simple as I want to charge for APIs, right? You really need to understand the intrinsic value of the information to the consumer of that information. And what is the value that the consumer of that information is willing to pay for that asset, asset that you hold? And then you realize that it's business. It's not API anymore. You're, you're talking about the business of the API and not the API itself. And domain knowledge becomes absolutely crucial at that point. And I can assert that now in my new role in Oracle Hospitality, where I'm responsible for API products and, uh, and an API monetization strategy, actually, that, that's been quite successful. I can talk about that later. But uh, uh, it's a very good example of where, you know, the value of information and the functionality we offer is understood. In hospitality, uh, uh, getting access to the information uh, uh, where reservations are held and, and where inventory is held is absolutely crucial, especially during the pandemic. I published my book in 2019, just before the pandemic. And I think, well, uh, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, it, you know, my book sold a lot because of, you know, the API all of a sudden became absolutely critical. Why? Because now everything needs to be digital, right? Same with hospitality and even more, right? All hotels have to modernize overnight. They're like, okay, now I need to be able to check in online. I need to be able to check out online. I need to be able to order food online. I need, how do you do that? Well, APIs, what happened? The hospitality industry two years ago wasn't as digital as, for example, the airline industry where you, you know, you have been able to check in to a flight, you know, and go into the gate, right, with your phone for a while. But now that's changed in hospitality. Overnight, all of a sudden, everyone wants to do that in hotel as well. You want to go check in and go to the, uh, uh, get your, your digital key in your phone and then open the room key without having, without having to even uh, go to the front desk to talk to the, to the agent and check in or anything like that, right? But doing that means that you need access to information and functionality exposed to the property management system, which is the system used by the actual hotel to handle the, 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 to manage the hotel, right? And, and, and the, and the, and the guests, right? Especially post-reservation, right? But we didn't understand, not everyone understands that, right? We think of hospitality and we think of online travel agencies like Booking.com or Expedia, but there's so much more to it, right? And everything and all that API network, all that API connectivity that happened behind the curtains is all integration, it's all enabled through APIs, right? 
So, so uh, a success story as well, back to your original question, is, in, is for us in hospitality. Uh, we had to overnight create a robust layer of APIs to open, you know, uh, open up, right? Opera, startups and established organizations could innovate and, and hotels could digitalize their end-to-end guest experience. And that really happened overnight. Like uh, uh, I think it was Gartner said, or, or many have said in, in, uh, in the industry that the hospitality industry uh, uh, underwent a 10-year transformation in two years. Like the speed of transformation that has happened in hospitality is unbelievable. And if you look at what enabled that transformation, it was APIs. Amazing. Uh, I mean, it, it, there's so many great examples there of that business-led value of the APIs and whether it be forced on the organization through a pandemic or through strategic planning. There's some really interesting stories there. You also mentioned a couple of things about, you said, oh, we used to call them data lakes. Now, now the latest thing is data mesh and that sort of stuff. And it made me think with all your experience in terms of the implementation of APIs, have you is it the same story still going on over and over? Is creating business value in the implementation of the APIs? Or actually, have you seen any changes to the priorities of organizations or the projects that they're approaching with their APIs? Well, I mean, uh, uh, it, it depends, right? It depends what the organization is trying to do. Again, it goes back to the API value chain and the business problem we're trying to solve. But before we answer this question, I forgot about one very good use case, uh, uh, back to your previous question, right, uh, about uh, API regulation. I worked in a project in Sweden for a, for a credit card company. Uh, they have to implement APIs for for basically PSC2 compliance, right? And this is another example where APIs is, is you know, more than, you know, uh, uh, an enabler for transformation. It's also an, a necessity for compliance and regulation. And the same goes with the, the uh, GDPR. And in healthcare, you see a move to fire uh, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. And, and now back to, to your new question. Well, <sighs> It, it's interesting. Like I think APIs have now, or is APIs are starting to become a norm rather than than. Let's talk about APIs, right? Like if you're implementing cloud native, and and I see a big well, the the, the shift to cloud native has been going on for a while, but I think like now it's like mainstream APIs. It's not like the thing you talk about because it's already part of your architecture, right? APIs become part of your way of building cloud native applications. So the conversation is shifting as to what is it that we need to do as an organization to to compete, right? Uh, and, and how do we do that, right? And therefore, you see uh, com- the conversation shifting into, into multiple areas. For example, in hospitality, sure, APIs is sort of honey, right? Uh, uh, the APIs are the thing that, that the bees are trying to get to. But the bees in itself represents a community. And building that community and enriching that community and growing that community, making sure that that community has all the tools all the information, all the aid, all the knowledge, all the the understanding they need in order to to you know uh, take advantage of that honey, right? Becomes as important as the honey itself. And without understanding what does it take uh, to to handle that community, right? Then then again, your your you know strategy overall, your digital strategy could could not realize the benefits that it could. So uh, a lot of my time, for example, in, in my role right now, uh, I would say like, a, a, you know, a good portion of my time goes into that, not so much the APS itself, but, you know, how do we handle the community? In fact, that I have a team that's just dedicated to community management because it's that important, right? And how do we enable them and what tools do we give them to be successful and so on? And another part goes about, you know, a, a customer is trying to innovate, right? And that, that's another part of the, 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 the answer to your question. Innovation is crucial. And how do you enable innovation, right? 
And, and in order to innovate, again, the API is the enabler to the innovation, but not the innovation itself, right? So how can you enable innovation, right? It's more about understanding what you can do with the APIs. It's more about domain knowledge, right? As it is about, you know, my API semantics and I'm using the latest and greatest API specification based on OS 3.0 versus GraphQL because I don't have and all the technology discussion, right? No, no, it's actually not about that. It's understanding the domain capabilities that your API is delivering and how to leverage that in order to deliver innovative use cases that can either disrupt uh, 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 you know, disrupt what's called disruptive innovation or just, uh, innovate in a way that you are enabling an existing business to, to be more different and therefore keep up with the competition that's, you know, that's going super fast. I, I think I answered your question maybe when I would be, uh, a bit beyond, but, uh, uh yeah. Yeah, so it's like they've they've built the foundations of digital transformation with their API strategy. Now they want their community to run Correct. with it. And so it's fostering that, that community to understand the value proposition they can get out of that APIs, come out with new innovative business models and use cases from those APIs. David, and it's understanding the communities. Like it's not one community, it's multiple communities and different communities or different audiences may have different uh, perspectives and different ambitions, right? And they need to be treated differently. For example, our vendor community uh, is completely different to our customer community. In fact, uh, it's so drastically different that the conversations tend to be different as well. But we also have internal communities, right, within, within the product organization that also want to use APIs to deliver better UX, to deliver innovation to deliver digital assistance, right? So, and again, the conversation is different. So all of a sudden you realize that, you know, handling people, right? That the communities around you is a, such a fundamental aspect of the API strategy that it is it, overlooked, right? Uh, in many cases, right? We focus again on the API itself and how good my API looks. And, and sure, we talk about API documentation a lot, but it's not just that, right? There's a lot of people aspect to it. I have a lot of, and my team have a lot of interactions like you and I are having right now as part of this strategy because it's important because you're dealing with humans at the end of the day and you need to get the feedback. You need to understand their needs. You need to have that conversation and you need to facilitate that conversation. So the tools that facilitate that conversation and make you more accessible become like, like I cannot stress enough how important that is. It's super important. We've talked about... uh API strategy and uh, business-led development with business use cases. And uh, we've talked about adoption and fostering API communities around the adoption of a new innovative uh, uses of the API for to digitally transform the organization, take them into new business models. But we kind of skipped technology in between those two aspects. There's obviously some sort of technology to facilitate deployment of the API. And you talk a bit about uh, uh, architectural styles in your book. Um, how should a developer choose between some styles such as REST, GraphQL, gRPC, async, you know, the list goes on? Uh, I love this question. Uh, when I wrote a book, well, starting, I actually started in 2017 and then, you know, finished in 2019. Uh, and that's because I wrote another book in between, yeah. So, <laughs> but anyways, uh, uh, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm explaining the date is because uh, back then, the debate was starting, right? Like the soap versus red debate was ending. 
GraphQL was emerging and the ARPC was sort of like becoming more mainstream, right? And and funnily enough, the debate hasn't ended. Like like there's a, still a lot of debate out there, right? And and that's why I decided to cover the three technologies in my book because I wanted to go beyond like it's not just REST. If you understand the evolution of APIs, you see that we have a, a huge history of RPC, right? That then was all of a sudden disrupted by by REST, right? As a new architecture style, right? Or representational state transfer. You know, Roy Folding and his dissertation uh, on 2009. Uh, and now we're kind of going back to RPC because if you look at GraphQL, it's really an, an RPC based. It's an RPC inspired, I would like to say, uh, uh, protocol because I don't think they explicitly call it out as RPC, but it really is RPC like, right? Uh, especially when you compare it to REST. I think it's super important to understand uh, what the different technologies offer, how they do certain things differently for better or for worse. REST, uh, what I like about REST is the simplicity, right? In principle, right? So if you keep it simple and you understand uh, REST uh, uh, and how it can, you know, how a nice API can be structured in resources in a way that, you know, they're sim- deducible, right? Human readable, right? If REST is super intuitive to start uh, uh, consuming, right? It's not like you need to be a, 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 a you know, expert in object, orient- object orientation or, or, or re- remote procedure calls in order to deduce, you know, what can you do with a REST API and the resources within. It's so human readable that, that, you know, what we notice as well is that a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the expertise in REST actually come from tech writers who started working on the documentation aspects of REST, right? And then evolve their knowledge into what is the respect itself and actually not working to, you know, defining APIs itself, right? Like, like, like that simple it was. And that's also why there were notations like API Blueprint, which by the way, I absolutely love. It's a piece that, that it didn't gain that much popularity, but API Blueprint is a, it's a notation that makes it, it's like, it's markdown, right? So you can describe an API by just writing markdown text. And it's really that simple, right? So I like the simplicity, the intrinsic simplicity in REST. Where I think REST starts falling short is when you need to address use cases that require action, right? That are not easily modeled with a HTTP bear. Like HTTP bears are super straightforward, right? But what if you need to process something? How do you express that in REST? Right. And then there is a big debate on, yeah, well, you can use a, a, a post. The post is not necessarily a process, right? Like that's not the action you're trying to express, right? In GraphQL or GRPC, for example, uh, you can easily model that by just explicitly calling it out what it is, right? Process a booking. That's your operation. Full stop. So I like the fact that you can express intents with uh, RPC-based protocols, right? Uh, as opposed to, to, to being you know, to try and, and work around it because the, the, the standard or the architecture style is limiting you to, to expressing that action. Again, it's, it's, you know, a lot of this is a little bit subjective, right? Because you could, you know, you can do both with both, right? Uh, but I'm just, you know, trying to explain my, my personal choices in terms of, uh, uh, what technology should I use in hospital, in, in my, in my role, for example, we actually use both. We have over 3,400 REST API and they are being successfully used, right? Uh, but we started now with GraphQL and what we're seeing is that GraphQL can act as a very good, uh, first of all, aggregator, like, like, because our APIs are so granular, maybe with GraphQL, we can, you know, uh, 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 you know, take a step back and make it more coarse grain functions, right? That can orchestrate multiple REST APIs. And in fact, that's a very common use case for GraphQL, right? Where, where you put GraphQL as an orchestrator of REST APIs, right? Uh, it's not the only use case, but that's, that's one that, 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 you know, that's, uh, that, you know, people do talk about a lot. But also what I like about, uh, GraphQL, for example, is, subscription and uh, it's not a, a a topic that you hear a lot 
but you will hear more as GraphQL starts to become more mainstream, which is what we're seeing now. So subscription is uh, basically is, uh, is a streaming capability within GraphQL that enables push. How do you do that in REST? Again, it's something that you wouldn't naturally do with REST because REST is meant to model request reply calls. And then, you know, the webhook uh, came into play, which is basically a way to uh, work around, right, the limitation, right? And therefore, what you what you basically do is you define two APIs, right? One for, for call and another one for callback. And therefore, that's how you're able to, to address that gap uh, to, to deliver push capabilities with the REST protocol, right? Of course, uh, OS 3.0 and the Async API allow you to model that, right? But that wasn't that in the, that wasn't there in the original spec, right? GraphQL, on the other hand, right, already has it intrinsic within the, the operations that you support, which is query, mutation, and, and subscription, right? And it's super straightforward. So I like that a lot about uh, GraphQL. And gRPC, in my opinion, is a different beast altogether. Like like gRPC, because it's based on, uh, you know, uses, uses, uses protocol buffers, HTTP2. Uh, I think, and I think I said this in my book, right? And I expressed that in my comparison. Is if if you want to have a public API strategy and your and an important factor as it is in any API strategy is to speak to market. No, you know HTTP two ERPC is not yet at least not yet super consumer friendly, right? It's not like you can use your browser and start playing with it, right? It's not like you have a hundred clients out there that like graphical and GraphQL, for example, that you can just use and play around with ERPC. It's a little bit more complicated. It requires a little bit more technical knowledge, right? And therefore, I feel that. The ERPC for a public API, right, is not necessarily the best protocol. Maybe, you know, uh, I, in fact, I don't, I don't remember actually seeing a public ERPC based API. I'm not saying there isn't. I'm just saying I don't recall it right now. Uh, but, but for internal microservice to microservice communication is absolutely fantastic. So what I have seen though, a lot is you use gRPC for your mesh communication, right? Where you have service to service talking amongst each other using gRPC. In both directions, because gRPC is bidirectional, right? And, and it's super efficient at doing that. And then they expose the capabilities with GraphQL. And this is a perfect match because gRPC is RPC and GraphQL is RPC oriented, as I call it, right? And therefore you're not shifting paradigms. If you wanted to expose GR, uh, gRPC operations through REST, you go into a paradigm shift and then you need to map, right? How do you express this, you know? Remote procedure calls, right? Uh, and their actions into REST. So, so you can have that mapping, right? And, and, and that REST needs to look elegant. Otherwise, it's going to be what people call, you know, RPC, uh, uh, REST PC, right? Which is, which is kind of like a Frankenstein of, of what REST is meant to be and, and RPC. Mm. You, you briefly mentioned, uh, streaming there in, in relation to, uh, GraphQL subscriptions. I know one of your passions is streaming APIs. Um, can you run us through Streaming APIs and the use cases for those. Streaming APIs, uh, uh, and, I, and, I, and I'm going to use uh, hospitality as an example because that's really where I developed this passion. If I'm honest, like like I, I knew about, you know, I was I've always been passionate about push technology. Uh, uh, when AC, async API came into play, you know, I, I, I was quite quite excited as well because now we have a way to express uh, uh, to model right. Uh, 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 push interaction. Um, but I really didn't hit any use case where this was an absolute necessity. But in hospitality, it is an absolute necessity. If you think about the, the, the hospitality life cycle, especially from a guest perspective, it's by direction. It's natural. It's, it has to be by direction. When you do a booking, what do you want? You want a confirmation of your booking. How does that confirmation happen? Right. And how is that delivered? But as you continue through the experience, you get like like uh, offers to upsell. You get notifications on 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 things like like you know select your room 
And then when you check in, you know, there's so much opportunity to, to continue that experience in a way that, that creates a bidirectional interaction as opposed to a one direction interaction. But also if you go beyond and look at other use cases, things like, for example, uh, 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 ARI, uh, availability uh, rates and inventory uh, up, updates. How, when you book through booking.com, how is that inventory kept in sync with the, with the system that holds that inventory in the hotel? Like, like if a room all of a sudden goes out of service, how does Expedia know about that. Like, like that inventory may be gone, right? For, for a few days, right? But then you may get a booking, right? Or, uh, and, and, and Expedia is assuming that you have more inventory that you actually do have because of various reasons. Like, for example, a room going out of service. So maintaining that instant synchronization of information in hospitality is absolutely crucial. In fact, our audience pays for it. And back to the value of information. In this case, the value of information is not just the information itself, but how up-to-date that information is. Another example is Forex. In Forex Exchange, Forex APIs, they will value the, the I don't know what is the term, updateness, I suppose, like, like how up-to-date that information is. That is the intrinsic value that you're paying for, right? And being able to deliver that, right, has a price. And, and the most efficient way to deliver that is through I like to call it real time, although I'm correct. Sometimes it's not really real time. It's near real time because nothing follow, nothing goes as the speed of light. The reason I like to call it real time, real time is because the trigger to push that data is, has to be real time, right? And then of course it, there will be a lag and it will take some time. But, uh, but the bottom, what I'm trying to say is that, that this real time integration where you're instantly pushing as fast as you can, a change, an event that happens in your system, and, and, and the fastest you can do it, the better, right? Uh, uh, enables, right, uh, many use cases in hospitality, such as revenue management systems, which are the ones that enable to calculate rates, right? So because the hotel rates change on daily basis, right? But that's based on, on information that you get in real time and based on, 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 you know, what your inventory looks like in a given day, how many reservations you've received and so on. But also things for upselling, right? Like, like I want to know when you go to booking because I want to make an upsell offer. Uh, uh, but also, for example, uh, if you are, if you are trying to improve your guest experience through communication, right? Like there are so many different use cases in hospitality for that, 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 you know, our community is willing to pay for, but also our customers uh, want to benefit from uh, for multiple reasons. Like, you know, I have a data warehouse and I want to keep it up to date. I don't want the daily batch of data. I want it instantly. I want to instantly have an up to date representation of all my hotels inventory uh, in my data lake or my data manager, right? As I said before, it's a new thing, right? Uh, uh, and therefore, real time becomes critical. So more and more, what you see, or at least what I see uh, uh, evolving into, into the modern cloud native architectures is uh, what I call real time communication. It's not any more about, you know, uh, calling an API. It's about event streaming. It's about uh, being able to have all these events uh, uh, updating the systems around it, right? So every system is in sync. And I think this also relates to your previous question about, you know, what's changing? This is one of the aspects that's changing. The, 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 the event aspect is taking over more and more and more. And at least in my context, uh, uh, the streaming API has created so much enthusiasm and excitement that we're just giving it more focus, right? Because that important it has become. And, and the use cases are always huge. Like the amount of data that we're talking, the number of transactions that we're 
talking are always huge, right? If you have a hundred properties, we're talking about thousands of events a second, right? And therefore the infrastructure aspect, aspect back to your technology question become fundamental, right? You really need to have a solid infrastructure, a solid architecture that can handle those events uh, in a consistent uh, and efficient way. You need to think about things like, like uh, uh, not throughput only, but uh, a back pressure, for example, uh, uh, off, uh, um, offsets, right? How do you do parallel processing of events? Uh, guarantees like, you know, deliver only once and all of these things. Of course, the, the uh, technology aspect is one of the challenges and there's technologies like Kafka around to facilitate event streaming. But what about the standards around um, event streaming in terms of the APIs? Because we're talking about an event streaming API. So you mentioned async API. We've had a previous guest talk about cloudevents.io as a global streaming type standard. Uh, are there any standards emerging around streaming APIs? Like you, you touch upon two that are, are, are super important. Like, like async API, uh, you know, it has, it has become more popular. And I think I touched upon it before. You also talk about cloud events, but for me, they are not necessarily competing standards, but more like complementary standards. Like cloud events define a good structure to model your event objects, right? Like, like, you know, do it consistently and having that, adopting that standard has a benefit, right? Like, because, you know, it, it becomes a lot easier to at least consume the metadata of your event. And then, you know, the data of the event, which is, you know, to see the cloud event standard, right? Like, like you have like a, you know, it's like a, makes it very flexible to have any, any actual uh, uh, body, right? For that event, right? Uh, even in XML, actually. Uh, uh, so it's, so, you know, I think it's, 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 it's nice. And, and especially when you're implementing cloud native solutions that that make use of functions pass uh, 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 you know being able to consume events that look similar it's super important like like for me it's kind of like a given right uh, async API on the other hand is kind of it is an specification to model asynchronous communication it's more about modeling the interaction and in modeling the interaction you have to also model the data within but that data within could be a cloud event right with with you know a different data structure so it's up to you whether you want to you know make use of the cloud event for Format, right, uh, uh, or whether you want to do something else, like 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 you can do you can model that with async API, no problem. I mentioned another one, GraphQL subscription, uh, and there's another one within GraphQL that's uh, that is uh, talked about even less. It's called GraphQL Live Queries. Okay, uh, as GraphQL becomes more and more mainstream, uh, this is going to become more and more uh, mainstream. Like you see, for example, Amazon App Sync, right? It's a big deal, right? And and there will be competing offers in many other cloud providers that that may use GraphQL for you know, or app sync, app synchronization, right? For a streaming use cases, right? Back to my previous examples, right? Uh, I like GraphQL a lot because of the reasons I mentioned before, and I keep everything in one single standard. So I don't need to have one standard for a request response and another standard for push. I can just keep everything within, within one protocol, right? Um, but, but. Uh, there, there are new ones, like for example, one that I spoke about in my in my book, and I haven't followed it uh, recently, right? It's like Vulkan and also R Socket. So there are emerging technologies coming up that that are not yet uh, mainstream, but there is a lot of involvement. Uh, another one that I really like and I'm keeping an eye on more frequently is uh, HTTP three. Like there was a big buzz about HTTP two being you know super efficient because multiplexes communication and whatnot, but because HTTP two still makes use of TCP IP, which is you know it, it has 
it has to acknowledge right the sequence right and and it has you know, its limitations. There was a study that showed that the performance throughput on HTTP uh, two right uh, for APIs can actually degrade as you do more and more multiplexing because the multiplexing is limited by the limitations of TCP/IP on itself right. HTTP three because it's moving to UDP which is a streaming protocol right it's, it's not doing the acknowledgement and all that therefore you know can can you know benefit from much higher throughput right and then there's the the sequencing the the, the acknowledgement aspects of the protocol is left to higher level protocol right on top of UDP, right? Which is, you know, the HTTP protocol itself and therefore that can deliver performance. Uh, I don't want to claim that I'm not an expert in HTTP 3. I just don't want reading, by the way, like like probably like you have done, but I just find this a uh, uh, super interesting and I keep an eye on because I can see, you know, uh, I can see this evolving a lot, right? And and I can see this becoming mainstream. So, so although it's not a standard per se, it's more of a transport protocol. I see that this is going to enable new technologies in the future that that, you know, we can all, you know, uh, I, th- I think it can disrupt. So, so that's that's at least my 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 personal perception of where things are going. I can see it enabling a fifth book. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Louis Weir, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for, very much for joining us on Coding Over Cocktails. Pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation, both of you. Hey, listeners! Thank you for joining us in this round of cocktails. Please like and subscribe to check out other episodes of this podcast series. We're also available on your favorite podcast platforms, or you can simply listen in at torocloud.com where you'll find full episode transcripts and show notes. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! Cheers!